Please remain standing as we uh, pray and prepare to uh, look at God's Word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, again that you are our God, Lord, that you have redeemed us in righteousness only through the righteousness in Christ Jesus. And I pray that as we come to your word this morning, Father, Lord, we, Jesus, we look at something in which, a parable in which you have spoken. Lord, may you, uh, by the power of your spirit, convict us and comfort us through your word this morning. O Spirit, illuminate uh, our hearts and our minds as we dive into your word. And it may be all for the glory of your name and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, our text uh, this morning comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 9 through 14. So hear now God's word. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, may he, may, and may God add his bless, blessing to the reading of his word. God. All right, you may be seated. Well, this is uh, kind of a fun uh, text to do because uh, it's very, it's a comparative text, and those, uh, I think, help us Uh, didactically learn a little bit better when we see two opposites or two contrasting elements. And so uh, we will see that uh, this morning in due time. So I I don't know how many of you have Apple TV or if you watch, I mean, there are so many streaming platforms, but there is a show on there that my wife and I recently watched uh, called Silo. Now, if you've seen this, uh, you, may, you may get this a little bit more. If you have not, please bear with me. Uh, but this, the theme of sci-fi and post-apocalyptic uh, movies and stories and shows, these are becoming uh, much more common, uh, imagining what the world will be like one day. But in this uh, TV series entitled Silo, uh, it's depic- depicting a dystopian a uh, group of people of about 10,000, and they're in this silo underground. This silo has hundreds of different levels. It has a generator at the bottom, and it powers the entire silo. And at the very top, there is only one thing that kind of sticks out uh, upon Earth, and that's a, kind of a single lens. And all they know of the outside world is through that lens. Some of them are working down in the the mines or kind of the slums, you know, doing the dirty work of the silo, and others on the higher levels 
Uh, they kind of run the show, you know, a little bit more noble. But there's these two factions that exist in the silo. Those who are imagining something outside in the world, that there's something outside of the silo. They were all born in this. But then there's those who just want to keep things running along, stable, no, no chaos. It's a drab world with drab colors, and I think they do a good job depicting this. But the irony is, even with these two factions, they're all trapped in this silo. They don't know what's outside of it. They share a deep human solidarity with one another. They're residing in darkness outside of the lights, the artificial lights that they produce, and they are all looking for something more wandering. They recognize their need and they seek freedom. Will they find it? I think a greater irony is that all of humanity is in a silo, a silo of sin. In sin, we're all trapped. Sure, we might be on different levels, or at least perceived levels, but the reality is is that we're all trapped in a silo of sin. Jesus captures this in this parable. Two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector, both recognize their need. They both pray. Uh, They recognize their need to seek God and seek freedom. But the contrast between these two men could not be greater. Uh, The setting here is in a temple, uh, probably the most prominent location uh, of religion in Jerusalem. And the Pharisees, uh, we all like to throw stones whenever we see uh, their name in Scripture. Uh, They are those who like to go above and beyond. In fact, they're often admired for their their faith uh, and their good works. Uh, But the tax collectors, on the other hand, uh, were not really well-liked. Some of you in here can resonate. Maybe you're not a huge fan of the IRS or other taxes that you have to pay. Uh, But it was much worse uh, at the time uh, Jesus was speaking this parable. They were despised. They were hated. And verse 9 here is giving us direction, and it's setting the scene for this parable. Let's look at verse 9. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, I don't know about you, but Jesus, that might be a little sharp to start off a parable. But he's, what he's doing is he's highlighting the contrast between uh, those two men. And I'm certain we all know someone who could use this parable in here. But the reality is, however, this parable is for you and I. We don't need to look to our left and to our right who this parable might apply to. We just need to look at our own hearts. The pride of our flesh blinds us to our true condition before God oftentimes. We believe that we at least have some good to offer, right? Even as believers, an erroneous sense of righteousness can creep in or crouch at our door. You see, good works and righteousness, they're not parts of a pie, Hey, God, I got a piece here. 
You make the rest of it, I'll contribute my piece. No. No, that's not how righteousness works. All of our righteousness is Christ alone. Jesus is the whole of our good, righteousness, and hope. And we'll, we'll see that as we go through this morning. So let's look a little deeper at the contrast that we see in the text this morning. So this first point, the proud Pharisee. Right, so let's examine and look a little deeper at what's happening here with this Pharisee. There are several elements to notice about his position. Look at verses 11 and 12 again. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You see, this Pharisee believed that he had standing before God. Uh, First, he is likely in the inner court of the temple, a sign of uh, holiness. He's closer to God's presence. Second, he is also standing by himself, perhaps as to represent his purity uh, from other men. And then thirdly, in going up to the temple, he goes in close to God and offers his prayer here, uh, his merit, as we will see. So he's offering these three things in his prayer to God. Thanks, abundant fasting, and impeccable tithing. No human could challenge him on these terms. He was doing uh, quite well, many would say. Uh, Again, he wanted to be admired. But in his thanks, what we see is that he thanks God for what he is not, rather than what he is. In other words, he doesn't thank God for redeeming him, but simply that he isn't a bad dude. He says, God, thank you that I am such a great guy. Man, it's great. Thank you. Then he qualifies his holiness to God by way of the law and human comparison. Now, the law only required fasting on the Day of Atonement. And the scholar F.F. Bruce reminds us that the Pharisees were the most scrupulous about tithing on the soil, the produce of the soil. So here, he is actually going way above and beyond what the law requires. And again, many of his time would say, wow, that is commendable. He wanted God to know clearly about his good works, his merit that he had. Now, before men, the Pharisee represents perhaps the best of men. We will see Christ's appraisal of that, holy, pure, and righteous. And again, many tried to emulate the Pharisees. But his position before men was one of isolation, actually, standing by himself and one of comparison. He despised others, holding them in contempt. In fact, I think his pride is a putrid smell to both God and other men. And while he recognizes that God does bless them, again, he is praying to God, thank you, God, so he does recognize that, his pride grounds his prayer in comparison. Notice here that his prayer is 
first-person active. And so for those of you who are not language junkies, this just means that he and his actions, first-person, are kind of the theme of his prayer. Thank you, God, that I am not like I tithe and I do this. Well, perhaps he will be heard because of his 33 words. His prayer is based on merit, fasting, and tithing. But what he fails to realize, though, is his total depravity. He remains trapped in the silo of sin, regardless of his merit. That means he has solidarity with those to his left and to his right, to this, with this tax collector. Herman Bovnik uh, captures Calvin in saying, our sin is not only destitute of good, but it's fertile and fruitful of every evil. The whole of our appetite is disordered, no, mu- no matter how much tithing or how much fasting you do. Perhaps this is what Jesus meant when he charged the Pharisees that they are as whitewashed tombs, looking beautiful on the outside, but inside full of dead bones and uncleanness. Now, hosting in someone in your home, I think, gives you an image of this. Some, uh, you know, you prepare to have some friends over, you're excited to spend some time in fellowship. Uh, it's only right, and I think proper, you know, for them to, you want them to see the beauty of your home, you want them to feel welcome. Uh, And so uh, when they come over, you know, have the landscaping proper, the color, hey, here's the architecture, uh, and cleanness. We're all admiring this beauty, and we are thankful when we see it. Uh, Then they come inside, and likely you've tidied up a bit. Uh, You've cleaned, vacuumed, uh, and lit some candles to make pleasant aromas. Uh, Both the outside and the inside are beautiful. Hey, this is great. Well, so they come in, and you're having some pleasant conversation, and then the sun starts to dip enough to where those beams of light come and shine in your house. This happened to me this past week, and uh, I was quite amazed at how dirty our home is. Uh, there is plenty, uh, plentiful food on the wall from our children. Uh, there's some dried avocado on our floor There's cobwebs from who knows how long ago. What I thought was clean is actually quite dirty, and I was proud of my work. But the sunlight gave me a different perspective on that. And now, I might feel embarrassed about that cobweb, that spider web, or that dried avocado, but the sunlight exposed my work in cleaning. And it did not measure up uh, to what cleanness looks like. Without the light, I felt good about my work, though. The Son of God here is beaming his light on the hearts of these two men. And he's exposing the Pharisee's heart before us for all to see. He's exposing the cobwebs and the dirt of the Pharisee's heart. You see, the Pharisee measured his merit as righteousness. 
And it's easy to stand on the sidelines and say, yeah, those Pharisees, those were bad dudes. You know, throw some shade on them. But if we don't realize that that is us too, we're wrong. This text beams light into our own hearts, illuminating that we too sometimes will measure our merit as a gauge of holiness. And now we must ask, did the Pharisee confess his sin here before God? No, he did not. Instead, he offered a rationale to God as to his purity. Now, even if we don't trust in God for, uh, even if we do not trust in our works for salvation, we still, I think, can present our merit to God as righteousness. We believe God might be happier with us when we do our morning devotion. And if we don't, he's a little bit more displeased. Uh, If we forget to pray, we might experience discipline, especially if we go longer and longer without praying. God is going to be displeased with us. If we haven't fallen prey to our besetting sin recently, God's happiness increases as the days pass. As the days pass. What reasons do you offer to God, whether uh, blatant or more subtle, to prove to God that you have some measure of righteousness? Furthermore, as we see with this Pharisee, measure, or merit is often measured in comparison with others. Notice the plane that this Pharisee is measuring his merit as well. It's with others. We might say, uh, God, you made the right choice uh, to make me uh, in this position, to put me in this position over that other guy, because we all know who that other guy is. God, I'm thankful that I read your word every day because I know so-and-so doesn't. I'm definitely, I definitely have a little bit extra holiness than they do. These subtle attitudes are sin. God's word illuminates the dirt that's still present in our hearts. And when any motive of your heart is done to prove righteousness, you're measuring merit before God, just like this Pharisee. You see, your salvation is not dependent upon your own merit or your demerit, only on the call and the mercy of God. Now, there's an inseparable link between pride and contempt. They go hand in hand. The proud Pharisee here held contemptuous comparison with others. Specifically, this word means in the Greek to show by one's attitude or manner of treatment that an entity has no merit or worth. That's the word that Jesus uses to describe what this Pharisee was doing. But the irony here is that he presents his merit, his worth, before God, but looks upon others as if they don't have any merit or worth. Do you see the irony? Now, who arbitrates what merit, what righteousness is? Is it God or this Pharisee? You see, pride leads to contempt. 
And there are many ways that we do this in our own lives. Think about what are the means by which you assess your net worth before God and before others. Perhaps it's money and tithing, uh, somewhat like this Pharisee. Maybe it's a perceived excellence in parenting. Maybe some of your achievements, I have arrived, uh, your position at work, high-ranking officer, whatever it may be. It could be a little bit more simple as well. Perhaps it's just that you faithfully attended uh, church and other functions of the church for a number of years. You're here when the doors are open. Or maybe your length of church membership and service over someone else that's maybe new or young. These can all be perceived elements of our net worth before God and others. Any such attitude stems from sinful pride, and it holds others in contempt. This exists in all of us. This parable is for all of us. May we offer true confession and repentance, unlike this Pharisee. You see, at root, this attitude that the Pharisee had inverts what's actually true in God's Word. Faith is credited as righteousness, as we just read in Romans 5. Christopher Watkins, in his new book called Biblical Critical Theory, frames this dichotomy as the N-shaped versus the U-shaped dynamic. So this Pharisee here represents the N-shaped dynamic. His merit goes up before God, and then God blesses after he sees his merit. But the biblical paradigm, however, is not N-shaped. It's U-shaped. God finds favor in his call. It comes down to us. God blesses, and our response flows from his favor and his blessing and goes to God. He says uh, that this default mode of merit, that's what we see here in the Pharisee. He speaks about it. He says, it is the default human setting in the default mode of our society. Achievement brings reward, and you do what you must to get what you want. Essentially, one could sum this up, no pain, no gain. That is the N-shaped paradigm. And we see here in the, with the Pharisee, that's what he's doing to God. He's offering God these things, his merit to receive his favor. Now, the other character in our story, we see his is U-shaped, one with no merit or no worth before God. And that is the pleading publican that we see in verse 13. So here is the publican, which is a fancy name for a tax collector in ancient Rome. We just sang uh, hymn 489. And Matthew and Zacchaeus fall into this category. Uh, these were men who often cheated their own brothers, uh, well overtaxing uh, above what Rome demanded. And they were despised by all 
and certainly were the chief of sinners. Uh, You could make that argument. You're cheating your brothers. You're a dirtbag. Clear the way as they come. No one wants to be around them. Now look again at verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now first, let's examine his position before God. Here we have a contrastive uh, conjunction, but. And it's used to highlight this difference. On the other hand, we have this Pharisee. He's standing far off, likely in the outer court or perhaps even further uh, of the temple where the Gentiles uh, would sometimes stand. Two, he could not even lift his eyes to heaven because of his indignity. And thirdly, he beat his breast, which is symbolic of sincere and absolute confession. I have nothing. I'm a sinner. As he stood far away from God's presence, sunlight pierced his heart. It exposed his heart. He knew his sin, that he was unclean. He knew his own dirt before God and his true condition. And that's why he dared not to get close or even look up towards God, but beat his breast. His response, I think, was, is similar to what we saw in Isaiah. Woe is me. You are a holy God, and I know my own sin. Isaiah covered his mouth, and Moses took off his sandals, and he objected to God as well. She's someone else. I can't do this mission. And second, we see his position before men. Notice there's no comparison with other men. That's not the focus of this tax collector. He acutely knew his sin. There was nothing meritorious about what he did. That was pretty clear. He was a tax collector. He cheated people. How is that, in human standards, meritorious? He had nothing to offer God except for his brokenness and his sin. His focus was on the depravity of his own heart, not others. He experienced solidarity with all of humanity, sinful and deserving of damnation. And from this heart flows his plea. In contrast to the Pharisees' 33-word prayer, he uses seven. And guess what? They're passive third person, which again is a fancy way of that he referenced God as the subject and the actor. The publican knew that he had nothing to offer God except for just dirt and uncleanness. His only hope was that God might act in mercy because without it, he would perish. His plea is simple, but it's honest. And unlike the Pharisee, he offers true confession and repentance to God. No one, not even this publican, likes to be in such a position. I don't like 
to realize that I've messed up, much less confess that. It goes against our nature of pride and our feeling of worthiness and dignity. But herein lies the beauty and the inverted nature of Scripture. God accepted this plea. No strings attached. God, the only thing you're getting here is my sin, my brokenness. This is a bad deal for you. Are you sure that you want this? And God accepts this plea. Jesus gives the whole of righteousness and dignity because God is an expert in brokenness. Well, is this a bit unfair? Clemency is built into U.S. law, and uh, the president, as the uh, chief of the executive branch, uh, can grant unchallenged and irrevocable clemency uh, to virtually anyone who he or she would deem uh, worthy or whoever they want to. Uh, And there are four different types. There's complete pardon, commutation of sentence, remission of the fine, and reprieve. Uh, The two most common are a pardon and a commutation. Now, a pardon is a complete forgiveness, uh, meaning no sentence has to be served, and it was as if they had done nothing wrong. They are completely free. Now, a commutation uh, doesn't erase the guilt or the conviction, but it can reduce or eliminate uh, the penalty for that. As you may guess, there are several in history that are controversial. Now, I want to imagine for a second, if he were alive, Osama bin Laden. Now, imagine him standing outside of the White House, pleading, beating his breast, saying, Oh, President, please forgive me. I made a mistake. Now, I think any president in their right mind would not accept this plea, but let's say that the president does. He hears this request, and he grants a complete pardon. It's as if anything he has done is wiped away. It indicates complete forgiveness and erases any conviction and sentence. Now let's say he and his family could live with us and perhaps could be your neighbor. How would this make you feel? What can he possibly offer to any of us, if this were to happen. Is this fair? You see, clemency is ironic. It's law and grace. It's justice and love. Someone, though, has to absorb the cost of what has happened. Unlike the Pharisee who measured his merit before God, the publican measures mercy. He has no righteousness in himself, nothing to offer God. He has no measure, no standing before God. But what does he do? Instead, he looks to the measure of mercy that God offers, that God would grant. His request is singular towards God. No one, including himself, could possibly provide any mercy of this sort. The publican knew that like Noah and Adam, that mercy and blessing come down from God, find its recipient, and response flows back up to God from 
that mercy. That's the you dynamic of the gospel. His lament to God echoes Lamentations 3, 23 and 24, where it says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Indeed, the Lord is merciful and gracious, and he's slow to anger. What is our response, though, when we sin? I think our response to sin is very illuminating what's going on in our own hearts. Sometimes it might be a quick confession to God, hey God, I'm sorry for that, and move on. If it's a bigger or a besetting sin, then we may do something else. We may increase our devotional load. Uh, We may increase our prayer time, increase our acts of kindness or service to others. These only compound the issue. Or we may self-abase. We may condemn ourselves. Shouldn't have done that. Why are you doing that? Making personal vows to be more obedient. Now, while these things are not bad in and of themselves, except for the self-abasement and condemnation, the motive in which we react to our sin is very critical. These motives that are done in response to sin I think can be cunning ways in which we are attempting. Our motive might be to earn forgiveness or keep the forgiveness that we have in God. We tell ourselves, I will be stronger and do better next time. It's here that the publican helps us and this parable helps us. He simply offers his sin to God. God is the only one who is forgiving him and strengthening him. We need to look to this mercy alone. We must have a continual posture of contrite confession. This isn't a one-time thing when we come to the Lord, but a heartbeat of confession. That's why we do it every Sunday morning. Because we know we are still in the flesh, that we still sin. But the reality is is that our sin often wants to minimize itself. We seek to minimize the reality of our own sin. We might do this by rationalizing our sin, saying, well, I was tired, or I said it because I'm under a lot of stress, that's why I got angry, or if you would have known what had to be done in this situation, you know, then it's different. Those are all internal things, but we may look outside of ourselves as well. My medical condition makes me do this, or if you only knew that so-and-so continues to cause me grief, then you would understand You see, these are cunning ways that our flesh uses to minimize sin, which can lead to a calloused heart in those areas. Here, true true contrition becomes difficult. And the further one goes down such a road, the harder it becomes. In his final book, uh, Forgive, the final one before his death, Tim Keller 
explicates Matthew 18, and he shows the heart of forgiveness is to absorb the debt. It's the only way that it can be canceled. All sin is an offense against God. It transgression, it transgresses his holiness. But you see, Jesus absorbed the entirety of our sin, of our debt on the cross. Keller states, forgiveness means that when you want the offending party to suffer, instead, you refuse to do it. And even more, human forgiveness is dependent upon divine forgiveness. The publican experienced this vertical forgiveness. He received God's mercy. Mercy from God translates into mercy for one another. If you've asked for and received forgiveness from someone, perhaps even in this room, do you still hold the debt against that person? If so, perhaps confession or forgiveness wasn't real. As God has done for us in Christ, are we willing to absorb the cost of sin and offense? This could be simple, such as a neighbor, a neighbor's kid swinging a baseball bat, the window comes over and breaks your window. They come up, I'll, I offer to pay for it. Say, no, I'll absorb the cost, I'll absorb the debt, I forgive you. It could be more serious, like a slow and sly way of damaging someone's name or their reputation, or perhaps it's a serious wound or a death of a family member. Whatever these things are, are you willing to absorb the debt and emulate what Christ has done for us? You see, forgiveness, we sometimes like to couch it in easy, like, just do it and move on. It's easy, but it's not. It isn't pretty, it isn't easy, or even quick, but rather it's messy, it's difficult, and often long and very costly. But will we emulate and represent our Savior well before one another and before a watching world. Will you in this room today absorb the cost of forgiveness? God grants you the power and the grace and the strength to do so. Now at the end of our parable, in verse 14, we find a little addendum here. Christ is giving his commentary on his own parable. Look at verse 14. It says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, if you remember, the Pharisee compared himself with the tax collector. And here, Christ, the righteous judge, compares the two men. It's a comparison that is final. The proud Pharisee went away without forgiveness, but the pleading publican went away justified. The only measure of merit that counts for us is in the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. 
James 4 says, God opposes the proud, but gives, gives grace to the humble. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ received a crown of thorns so that we might receive a crown of righteousness. A heartbeat of contrite confession before God and others is a sign. It's a fruit that you have received his mercy and this crown of righteousness. Perhaps we can resonate with Paul when his death was imminent in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, he writes to Timothy, the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. You see, that crown is none other than the person of Jesus Christ, whose absorption of the cost of forgiveness of sin guarantees our righteousness. And during this lifelong race, until that day when we die or we meet him in the air, we may sing as we did earlier. My guilt, my shame, I all confess. I have no hope nor plea but Jesus' blood and righteousness. Be merciful to me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you, O oh Christ, that you have given us this parable. Lord, we thank you that we, Lord, though we often try to find merit in ourselves, we thank you that your word is clear, that the only merit the only righteousness we have is you. So I pray that all of us in this room would rest upon the righteousness that we have in you, Lord Christ, and that we would look to you every and any time that we need mercy. Lord, we know that it comes from your gracious and merciful hand. So Lord, encourage us and convict us by the power of your Spirit that we might bring you glory, and that we might honor your name in all that we do. Lord, that we might have love for one another and love for you. We bless your holy name. Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this titled, It's a Meal.